welcome back to The Jackman Show. I'm Jen Pan, here, of course, with Paul Prescott. Paul, what's new? Not much. I'm enjoying my teacher summer break, you know? So That's right. Yeah. You're uh, your YouTube propaganda full-time now, as right. we established uh, last show. Um, but I, I'm really excited for this week's show, to be honest. I mean, we have been trying to get Cedric Johnson mm. on the show, like, for ages. Um, I'm sure lots of viewers are familiar with him already from his great work in Jacobin, Catalyst, Nonsite, and elsewhere. Um, but, Paul, what else is going on today? <laughs> well, there was a big um, election in New York City. Um, a yep, lot of things to talk that. about. Yes, some some very. Uh, it's funny because neither of us are New York City residents. Right. Uh, I don't live there anymore. Uh, but of course, you know, we have mentioned the mayoral race on the show before. Um, New York went to the polls yesterday to uh, to vote in the primary on the on on the Democratic nominee for mayor. Um, and you know, as as I think all of you know, uh, a new thing that was happening in New York this year was ranked choice voting. Right. Which uh, so you was could totally rank- not confusing. Everyone got it. No totally one complained not about it. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody got it. Nobody was trying to game the system at all. It worked yeah. like a charm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, what happened yesterday? Well, Eric Adams, who has been the front runner basically this entire time, uh, has emerged basically as the winner. Uh, we don't have the ranked choice vote tallies yet. Uh, they will not be expected until around June 29th, so we won't know for a few more weeks who the official winner is. But as we can see, Eric Adams right now is leading the pack with. Uh, over 30% of the vote. Um, and, you know, I think that this isn't a huge surprise. Like I said, uh, Eric Adams has been the front runner for months. Uh, Yang was kind of percolating for a while, but he's since conceded. And uh, from the from uh, the numbers so far, it looks like he didn't do that well at all. Um, but I think, so Eric Adams is a really interesting figure, right? Uh, because I think, you know, there's a lot to say about Eric Adams, and we've sort of gone into Eric Adams on the show before. Um, but in the last couple weeks of his campaign, um, I noticed that he was sort of deploying what I think was a very kind of old school type of political class identity politics. Uh, so Ross Barkin, who is a columnist at Jacobin and, of course, uh, has a great newsletter about New York City politics, he pointed out that, uh, among other things, Eric Adams argued at one point that rent control would destroy black wealth. So this is a very kind of classic, like uh, like I said, like 1990s sort of deployment of identity politics to mask a very sort of reactionary politics, right? Um, and I want to read this quote from Ross. This is from his newsletter. So he writes, uh, or this is a quote from Eric Adams. So Ross Barkin asked all the candidates what they thought about a rent freeze uh, or even a rent rollback. And Eric Adams said, the greatest wealth of black and brown people in this city is in their property. So when we start making any decisions on small property owners, we need to factor that. Then he goes on to say, because if we're not going to freeze mortgage payments for small property owners, if we're not going to roll back their mortgage payments, then we need to be careful. Um, and, you know, Ross goes on to point out that uh, actually uh, most of the property owners in New York, most of the landlords are not these like hypothetical black and brown, like small mortgage payers. Uh, they're larger landlords that mm-hmm. own multiple properties. Uh, so this is really, uh, you know, pretty disingenuous de- uh, deflection right. from the, the problem of rent, you know, uh, which, of course, in New York is sky high, as it is in many other large cities. Uh, and then closer to the election, there was an even more 
incredible uh, use of this type of identity politics from Eric Adams. Um, and and in this instance, he actually compared Andrew Yang and Catherine Garcia, who campaigned together, to Jim Crow. Uh, so let's take a look. This is a really amazing quote uh, from the New York from New York Magazine from Eric Levitz. He writes. Adams argued that by campaigning together, Yang and Garcia were effectively, quote, saying we can't trust a person of color to be the mayor of the city of New York when the city is overwhelmingly people of color. It is unclear whether Adams is aware that Andrew Yang is of Asian descent. Then he goes on to write, in any case, after Yang confirmed that he is not white, Adams refined his indictment of the Yang-Garcia alliance, saying that their decision to campaign together on Juneteenth was an, was an insult to, quote, black and brown people in the city, as well as all New Yorkers. Um, then, uh, let's see, finally, on Monday, Adams likened Yang's decision to, sh to share his second choice with the public to Jim Crow era poll taxes. Uh, so I, I think the first thing I, I, love know, he, I love how he had like a few prepared. So I was like, all right, if they knock that one down, I'm coming with the poll taxes. Yeah, not, yeah you know, exactly. Got to yeah. be prepared. Yeah, he just like lined up all of the like greatest like deflection like identity hits. Um, oh, yeah. And I was thinking, you know, uh, so so Kale and I on a different show had sort of looked at Diane Morales and to a lesser extent Maya Wiley, who are two other candidates, and how they kind of come from like the progressive NGO world. And so we looked at how they use social justice rhetoric and kind of, uh, uh, you know, deferred to this kind of identity rhetoric in their own way. I actually think that what Eric Adams is doing is a little bit different. Uh, like I was saying before, he feels very much like a kind of older school of black political class yeah. operative. Um, the first thing that came to mind when I was looking through his quotes uh, was Clarence Thomas in the 90s calling the Anita Hill hearings a, quote, high-tech lynching, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I was also thinking, you know, if you want to have more examples of, you know, this kind of like 90s identity politics rhetoric and how it was used to mask or cover up very reactionary or conservative policies. Um, just look at any Adolf Reed article from, you know, the progressive or from, uh, from the village voice when he was writing columns in the nineties. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and Cedric of course writes and speaks about this a lot, but you know, that thing about property owners, it was very clear that like when, when Eric Adams says black politics, he's meaning politics of the black PMC or, or of black large property owners. Um, so, you know, you put that in place for, a more complicated uh, assessment of what black politics is. And, you know, I mean, like you said, th these results should not necessarily be that surprising. And I think even if we're talking about this tough on crime guy, former cop being elected in this moment. And again, I think it just goes back to something we, we try to harp on. It's like, it does make sense. You know, if areas being affected most by crime are concerned about that and like their, their first knee jerk reaction might not be what the left thinks that it should be. You know, um, and I think especially, I think I've said this before, like where I think it's a little bit of a shame is that I think we've been building majority support for something like criminal justice reform, however you define that. And so I think Eric Adams kind of maybe talked a little bit about that. And then if it's a choice between that and defund, and if people don't really understand defund, they might choose the uh, reform or, you right. know, so, you know, we, we shouldn't be too surprised by that. 
I, on that note, I want to take a look at uh, the breakdown of vote by, by, by neighborhood in New York. Um, so the New York Times and I think a few other outlets kind of did a, you know, breakdown by candidate of each neighborhood in New York. And if we pull that up, we can actually see that uh, Eric Adams did really well in working class black neighborhoods, right? So uh, if we scroll in and look at, say, uh, you know, Brownsville or East New York or Flatbush, he killed it there. Uh, it, I mean, in some you know precincts, it wasn't even close. He had close to seventy, over seventy percent of the vote, uh, and you know the other candidates are really, really trailing behind him, like not even close again. Um, and I think you know one very interesting uh, neighborhood is Thompsonville in Staten Island, which is where Eric Garner uh, was killed by the police a few years ago. That, of course, was an event that sparked kind of the first wave of Black Lives Matter. Um, and if you look at that, Eric Adams, again, the law and order candidate, the refund the police candidate, uh, dominated in that area. Now, I think, you know, this is a question that I actually feel like we should save for Cedric because this is clearly his wheelhouse. You know, he talks a lot about how uh, racial identity is not the same thing as constituency. And it's also, we should not equate it with um, political commitments, right? Uh, so I, I do want to ask him about this, but I guess for now, right off the bat, I'll just say, you know, back to something that you just mentioned. Uh, I think, I don't think it was a surprise to anybody necessarily that Eric Adams, you know, uh, came out on top. I mean, again, he's been sort of leading in the polls this entire time. I mean, if you have been paying attention to New York City politics, uh, it's, it's not really a surprise that he came out on top. But that said, I think a lot of the narratives that we've been hearing over the past year and a half about, you know, what it is that Black voters want, uh, what it is that they care about, I think sometimes it's not that clear, actually. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people, or, or it's so easy to ventriloquize an entire community, so to speak. Um, and I think one of the valuable things about Cedric's work, again, is that he really breaks down uh, why you can't do that um, and why building a political coalition can't be a matter of just racial affinity alone. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting when you when you talk about Eric Adams as kind of a more old school uh, black political class politician. I mean, what that makes me think of, and you, you know, we can't generalize too much, despite what New Yorkers think. New York is not the whole country, of course, but. You know, I think still today, you know, an old school black uh, political uh, political machine politician, I think, will still do better among many black communities than like mm -hmm. a hyper woke NGO or, you know. Yeah. So I think that I mean, we, we've seen this play out. We saw it kind of play out in the Bernie thing. Not that Bernie was hyper woke, but like, you know, they that that still is going to work in certain contexts if there's not mm -hmm. a clear alternative. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in uh, Cori Bush's election in St. Louis, right? Uh, I think that she was, I don't, I don't remember the name of her opponent, but she was up against uh, what I yeah. believe was a kind of like black, like political machine, old school sort of candidate. And a lot of the older working class black voters broke for that candidate over Cori Bush. I mean, even though they're both black, of course. Right. Yeah. And, and that was actually interesting. I, I, I believe I'm correct in this and that the incumbent um, who had been around forever, um, actually won more black support than um, Cori Bush, who, again, kind of her main thing was as a Black Lives Matter activist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, right. But should we shift to some, some good news in New some York? Some better news, yeah. Because, you know, I'm the good uh, cop in this situation. Um, <laughs> you know, so India Walton is a um, a socialist candidate out in Buffalo, was endorsed by DSA. Um, I'm actually not sure if she's a member of DSA. I think so. 
Um, she's also a union nurse. I think she was with mm-hmm. the Union 1199. Um, so she won the primary for uh, being a mayor of Buffalo. So that was a huge victory. Um, I think I don't think people really saw that coming or thought maybe she had a big chance. And I don't know much about the campaign in detail, but from some of the things I've read, what I understand, you know, part of her strength as campaigning was that she wasn't trying to be the wokest person in the room all the time. She was really trying to meet people where she at, where, where they were at. And I saw a quote from her in an article where she talked about how in her workplace, you know, majority white workplace, but like working in a place where maybe not everyone necessarily, uh, you know, liked her or liked her initially kind of forced her to understand how to work with people um, across uh, different divisions. And so I think that kind of played out on how she ran this campaign. Um, But she didn't run from the label socialist, but she was, I think, spoke in a way that, you know, a lot of people could understand. Mm hmm. Uh, We have a pretty good clip of her uh, speaking at a campaign event, and I want to roll it uh, just because, uh, uh, well, we'll comment on it, but let's watch. All that we are doing in this moment is claiming what is rightfully ours. We are the workers. We are the workers. We do the work. And we deserve a government that works with and for us. So that's, of course, a classic bit of socialist uh, agitprop there. Uh, Love it. Uh, Congratulations to India Walton. Uh, Hopefully we'll hear, you know, way more from her. Um, But to go back to what you were saying, you know, about uh, uh, her specific style of rhetoric. I mean, I listened to a few of her speeches and uh, and much like that one, a lot of it sounded very Bernie-esque, right? Right. Like it wasn't... um, it wasn't like Warrenite, right? I mean, at least from what I saw, it wasn't Warrenite or really like progressive NGO inflected. It was like, we are the workers. Like, again, right. that's very, that's almost and like it, anachronistic, right? And again, I mean, it makes sense. Like people like nurses, they like teachers, they like postal workers, truck, you know, how could you like not like these people as a group, you know? So I think if you speak in a way of like, we're just, we're trying to build something that speaks to those people that works for those people, I think it's going to resonate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, on on that note, on on, uni- on, workers, on the unions, right. on workers, um, I know that uh, we have, I think, touched on this study in a couple different talks before, or at least in one other talk. Um, but there's a new study that has come out about uh, how unions uh, affect racial prejudice among white workers. Uh, so, Paul, what did they find? Yeah, so this was a study by the um, American Journal of Political Science um, out of Princeton, I believe, um, conducted this study trying to measure, you know, how do unions affect the racial attitudes of white workers? And so what they did in the study is they developed a scale of, they call it a scale of racial resentment. And what they did, they got respondents, a mix of white union members and non-union members to respond to a series of statements on a scale that goes from strongly disagree to strongly agree. So, for example, one statement was, quote, the Irish, Italians, Jews, and many other minorities overcame prejudice and worked their way up. Blacks should do the same without any special favors. So the respondent would mark, do they strongly disagree or strongly agree? Another statement, for example, was generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for blacks to work their way out of the lower class. And again, they would mark, do they agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree. And so it would take kind of too long for me to fully explain in detail how this study was conducted and measured. So I highly suggest people read the study if you're a little skeptical, and maybe we can link it in the show notes. But here was um, some of the conclusions that they reached. So they said, 
Um, white union members are less racially resentful than non-union members by between 4.7 and 6.3% of the racial resentment scale. The magnitude of this relationship is substantial, rivaling or surpassing other demographic, other demographic variables and that strongly structure mass politics in the United States. Past union membership is also significantly associated with reduced racial resentment. Past union members are less racially resentful by between 2 and 2.5% of the range of the index. So the authors of the study also speculated on why. Why are unions today are able to have this effect on white workers? And so they concluded that there were certain structural factors that create this situation in unions. So it said union leaders, because of the need to recruit workers of color in order to achieve majority memberships in racially diversifying labor sectors, have ideological and strategic incentives to mitigate racial resentment among the rank and file in pursuit of organizational maintenance and growth. And so if all of this is true, the decline or growth of unions has huge implications for a contemporary political and social life. And so the study goes on to say, as a conclusion, taken together, the results point to the importance of unions for influencing the racial attitudes of its members, and more broadly for the development of civil rights policies. This influence also points to a major consequence of union decline in the modern era. As a critical organization associated with promoting racial toleration weakens in organizational reach, its relative influence over political outcomes and the formation of sociocultural identities, particularly within the white working class, will likely continue to weaken with it. And so these conclusions really shouldn't be surprising, and they are consistent with a lot of labor history. In the 1930s and 40s, during the heyday of the the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was a new left-wing uh, labor federation. Um, in the South, labor organizing was often synonymous with civil rights and racial integration. Uh, many CIO unions were known for bringing diverse memberships together through social events like dances, picnics, sports events. And this work not only won strong contracts for all the unionized workers, but it helped to break down the individual prejudices of white members. And so I want to look at one example specifically with the Packing House Workers of America, uh, which was a union representing meat packing workers, um, that, and they did some of the best organizing on racial justice in the workplace. And a lot of times these Packing House Workers would have black workers, uh, Scandinavian, um, Irish, Eastern European, German, I mean, all types of ethnicities within the workplace. Um, and this example, I think, points to the structural factors that were referenced in the study that push white workers and unions to be more likely to challenge their own prejudices. Um, so, you know, during World War I, there was an organizing drive among the packing house workers that was beaten back by racial division. Black workers weren't allowed in the union, so the employers then used black workers as strike breakers. So when another organizing drive gained momentum in the 1930s, many workers had learned a lesson. So here's a quote from a white packing house worker talking about the organizing drive in the uh, 30s. He said, they, meaning the white workers, they didn't come in and hug him and kiss him, but they knew they had to be together, period. Even though some of them were anti-Negro, they still knew you had to be together to form a union and to win some of their demands. And so, on the other hand, many black workers drew a similar conclusion, even though they had much more reason to be skeptical of interracial organizing given the past. So one quote here from Phil Philip Waitman, who was a black uh, shop steward, at a plant in Chicago. So he said, we cannot cater to whites and we cannot cater to the blacks. This is the principle on which the union is organized. 
No second-class citizenship. We never met with a black group or a white group. It was always bringing together. By consistently stressing the material benefits the union was winning, they were able to convince some hesitant white workers to support the multiracial union. Many packing house workers called this that they had a religion of unity. And so what's so interesting to me about this is that the union did not set out to change the hearts and minds of white workers. They started with the pragmatic assessment of what could win them the strongest contract. But if you follow the same union over time, the work that they did actually wound up changing the hearts and minds of many white workers. And many white workers a few years later were doing sit-ins with fellow black co-workers to desegregate local restaurants or bars or whatever it was. Um, and so lastly, I'll add that unions are a unique site, a potential unique site of political education for working people. Not many other institutions offer this. And many locals do political education on racial inequality specifically. And again, this is also not new. Um, unions were one of the only institutions during the Jim Crow era to educate white working class people about how racism divides working people. And so I wanted you to take a look at this um, a clip from a very interesting video that was put together by the United Auto Workers Education Department in 1946 called The Brotherhood of Man. So it isn't the size of a brain that counts, it's what it can do. And their tests have shown that our three average men are equal. If you take their skins off, there's no way to tell them apart. The heart, liver, lungs, blood, everything's the same. Uh, everything's the same. Heart, liver, lungs, blood... No, not blood. Blood's different. Well, there are four different types of blood. A, B, AB, and O. Patient in room 216 needs a transfusion right away. I'll give it to him. I'm his brother. Stanley! He's dead! Yes, but he wouldn't be if we'd been more scientific about it. Brother or no brother, what he needs is type A. And the right blood donor for him could belong to any race, since the four blood types appear in all races. Say, we're not really so different at all. Like you say, it's, it's just the frills. <laughs> Only, wait a minute. I, I got a question. How come we live like this? And, uh... It wasn't always that way. For instance, at a stage of history when the so-called pure whites of Northern Europe were little better than savages, the darker-skinned mixed peoples of the Near East and Africa had flourishing cultures. And the great civilization of Northern China had begun to develop. All peoples contributed to civilization, reaching high levels at different times, and each learning from the experience of the other. So just think about that was 1946. Think about a white worker in 1946. If they were not in the, a union and getting that message, where would they get that message? 
And the reality is they probably wouldn't get that message. Um, and I think the same goes for today. Without unions, many workers may only get exposed to an explanation of why their life is bad that scapegoats immigrants and people of color. With a union, there's a possibility that their anger can be focused on who the real enemy is, which is the corporate class, the capitalist class. Um, so I'm really glad that study was put out. I think you know it really highlights unions. Again, it's not just about workers making more money. Like It is a very important part of our civil society that affects you know all levels of society and all kinds of issues um so jen i'm curious your thoughts on that yeah um i i love that study because you know when you read it uh i think to us it's kind of like oh duh you know or like oh well like you're kind of stating the obvious uh but i also want to point out um uh, I mean, A, it's good to have it empirically <laughs> on paper, right? Um, and B, you know, I have complained on this show before about the kind of top-down anti-racism training that comes from, like, HR departments and diversity consultants and Robin D'Angelo and so on and so forth. Um, and the overwhelming, the the literature on that type of training, like, you know, HR-mandated, uh, required diversity training in corporate settings the, the consensus is overwhelmingly that it doesn't work to reduce people's biases. Um, it doesn't, you know, diminish people's feelings of prejudice. Uh, and also it, you know, doesn't increase diversity in the workplace. Uh, so the, the consensus is that it doesn't work, like I said. Um, but I think what I talk about less on this show is the same researchers who are basically like that type of implicit bias training doesn't work are when they're asked about what kinds of uh, initiatives work to reduce workplace prejudice, they always come back to the same thing, which is that you have to get people like working together toward a right. common goal, which sounds like totally corny, but like it's true. And they don't explicitly say like you need to put people in a union, but that's exactly what a union does. So I think that, you know, that's just another way in which the study totally makes sense to me. Yeah. And I love those quotes from the white and the black worker because the white mm -hmm. worker, I mean, it was just straight up. All right. I'm going to keep my racist thoughts to myself. Right. For the purposes of this union, but you know, in the process, at least that gives them a chance to be like, "Hey, actually, in mm -hmm. my, you know, I'm now experiencing that maybe my fucked up thoughts are not not right. reality." And for many people, it did. For some people, it didn't. But I think that's the best chance that we have. Right. I, I think that UAW cartoon also is amazing. Like when you first showed that to me a while ago, like you know, I. Feel like I know a little bit about labor history, but I was like, "Oh my god!" Like I've never seen that before. Yeah. Um, calling, and I think that calling white that? people calling white people savages in nineteen forty six. I know that wow. that caveman caricature. Um, <laughs> that video might be canceled today, but right. I thought it was great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I think there is a tendency uh, now among liberals, but among the left as well, to have to always couch our support for the labor movement and for unions in kind of. Or also say, like, well, we know unions used to be racist or, like, we know unions aren't perfect. And honestly, like, of course that's still true. But, I mean, to look at that cartoon uh, and, you know, there are many other examples from labor history. I mean, I think that unions actually, like, played an important role, as you say, in reducing, uh, you know, workers' prejudice, not just right. in this empirical study that you've been talking about, but, at, you know, we have we have examples from history as well. Um, right. And and I guess finally, I want to say, you know, this idea that like through working together for a common goal 
to a common goal, uh, that you, that, that is the process that can start moving people's hearts and minds. Like that's just a classic materialist explanation of how you change people. Right. I mean, the kind of liberal understanding is, oh, well, you have to like do these anti-racism trainings or like people have to like get woke before they can start working together because, you know, anti-racism is, or I mean, sorry, racism is so ingrained in everybody that you really have to work. You really have to do the self work before you can actually be part of a movement. Um, but I mean, I just want to remind everybody, Jacobin viewers probably don't need reminding, but there is another option, which is that, you know, uh, if you change the material conditions, AKA, if you work, if through the struggle of changing the material conditions, you might also change some hearts and minds. Right. Nothing to add. Total agreement. <laughs> Nothing to add. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think we actually have Cedric Johnson yeah. with us now. So um, very excited for this. Let's go ahead and bring out Cedric. So Cedric Johnson, of course, is Associate Professor of Political Science and African-American Studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He's the author of the book Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of African-American Politics. And he's also the editor of the book The Neoliberal Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism and the Remaking of New Orleans. Cedric is also, of course, a contributor to Jacobin, Catalyst, Nonsite and a wealth of other publications. And we've been trying to get him on the show forever. So welcome, Cedric. Thank you for having me. Sorry it took so long to to get things to get the line up. Not a problem. We're happy to have you. Um, So I guess I want to start just by diving in and looking at basically the last year and a half, um, what the the time period that people have been calling the racial reckoning. Um, Because, you know, we are more than a year out now from kind of the beginning of the protests, which of course were sparked by the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis um, and the police murder of other uh, black people. Um, And the reason why I want to get your thoughts is because, you know, even before this, uh, the kind of year of racial reckoning, um, you were a pretty early critic of some of the rhetoric and the tendencies that you saw coming out of Black Lives Matter in its previous iterations. Um, And I actually want to read a line from uh, the beginning of, or the opening of your 2017 Catalyst article, which is The Panthers Can't Save Us Now. Uh, You write, instead of a left politics predicated on anti-racism and racial affinity, this essay urges a popular anti-capitalist politics rooted in situated class experiences as the only viable means for ending the policing crisis and guaranteeing genuine public safety. So if we're, you know, I, I think that essay holds up great, but I think, you know, if we're looking back at the last year and a half or the time between when the essay came out and now, um, lots of people have pointed out that, you know, we have not, these, these protests have been huge. Um, I really do think something has changed, you know? Uh, and so I'm wondering from you, does the last year and a half change your analysis at all? Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily change uh, my politics. It does mm-hmm. um, prompt a different kind of interpretation of what's, what's transpired, right? So there were people who were downright giddy um, with the George Floyd protests in terms of having that moment where they could say to the, all of us who have been critical, um, look at how wrong you were, right? And so uh, we're still dealing with that in some, on some level. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think now that we've had, um, you know, now that the, the owl of Minerva, so to speak, has, has spread its wings, we should be able to look at what transpired last year a bit more uh, critically and maybe with some sober eyes, um, let me say a couple of things. I don't think it was all for naught or it was inconsequential. And I said this to people at the time. I actually think that if we think about longer historical process, it mattered. And we don't know how it's going to matter ultimately, right? I mean, in the midst of the George Floyd protests, I remember walking down my street 
and encountering a group of uh, small uh, kids, probably all under the age of 10, uh, unattended by adults, scribbling out Black Lives Matter on the sidewalk and other slogans. Um, and I thought to myself for a moment, like, well, what is this going to mean for these kids, right? Like, we all have a different perspective based on our engagement over the last few decades, um, but we don't really know what it's gonna, how it's going to matter uh, over the longer haul. So I think that would be the way I would start, that, you know, I'm critical of what happened. And I'm going to offer some more criticisms in a second, but I just think we have to, you know, do both at the same time. You know, look at these moments as galvanizing, look at them as moments where certain segments of the population become politicized and begin to learn, you know, uh, what they want and clarify what kinds of of, uh, things they they want and desire uh, and also learn how to be political. Right. And so I think I don't I don't see it as a as a beginning or an ending. I just see it part of a part as part of a longer historical um, process. The other thing I would say, um, you know, critically, I don't think everything we witness should be reduced to a victory of Black Lives Matter. Um, I think on one level, of course, the George Floyd uh, murder was the precipitating event. And so many people turned out to express their discontent with, um, you know, not just the Minneapolis police, but also, uh, you know, some, so many of the other um, police killings that had happened um, over the course of, of last year. Um, at the same time, you know, we could also say that this was a protest against the Trump administration, right? It was a moment in which people expressed their outrage at the mishandling of the, the COVID pandemic, right? It was also, uh, as one of my good friends, uh, Donnell Walton, who's a, a physicist and a, a material scientist, um, pointed out at the time, we could also look at it as, look at the, the events of the George Floyd protests as the return of the third space, right? We all were denied that social space beyond our um, our households and our workplaces, right? We were denied that during the shelter in place. But in this moment of the George Floyd protests, you saw people returning to the streets, congregating en masse. It provided us with a permissible um, moment and, and an opportunity to re-engage with the public, to reunite with friends, um, to celebrate. You know, and a lot of these, these protests had a, a festive feel to them. Um, and so I think we, we can't really just, um, you know, speak in such simplistic terms. Of course, for diehard, you know, anti-racist, this was like their moment. Um, but if we look at it again with a critical eye, by the end of the summer, much of the public support for Black Lives Matter had dissipated. So there was a short window when a slim majority of Americans embraced the basic premise of Black Lives Matter. That's that um, you know, black people are over-policed. Black people are much more likely to be subjected to police violence and death. Um, most Americans embrace that for a short moment. But by the time we get to the end of the summer and the Jacob Blake uh, shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, some of that support unraveled. We could also argue that the, the huge outpouring of people in the streets in terms of mobilization is not the same as a new consensus around a particular kind of uh, policing that would be different from what we already have. Most Americans still support police. Most Americans don't want to see police budgets cut. Um, and it's been difficult over the last year to actually see some of those, those really strong um, reform measures enacted uh, in different cities. We've seen a lot, but we haven't seen some of the, the, the key cornerstones of the most progressive to radical um, Black Lives Matter forces. So again, I just think we have to take a much more sober uh, perspective on it, and, and hopefully the passage of time will allow some people to uh, to get there. 
So I, I want to follow that up by asking you about, um, well, earlier in the show, we were talking about the New York mayoral race. I don't know if you've been following it that closely, but Eric Adams, mm-hmm. uh, who, you know, is a former police captain who kind of ran on a law and order platform, uh, pledged or didn't just avoid the defund question, but actually actively pledged to refund the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, reinstate a pretty controversial, like special task force that de- the de Blasio administration had gotten rid of. Right. Well, so in yesterday's election, you know, he did really well, not just citywide, but specifically in black working class neighborhoods like Brownsville, uh, again, East New York, Flatbush. Um, I pointed out uh, Thompsonville, the neighborhood in Staten Island where Eric Garner was killed, uh, also voted heavily for Eric Adams. Um, so when we were talking about this, you know, I, I was like, well, this is Cedric's wheelhouse. Uh, this, this reminded me a lot of, you know, your comments on how racial identity is not the same as a constituency, and that's not the same as uh, like a political commitment. So can you talk a little bit about uh, where you see the kind of disjunct between the rhetoric around policing and what played out in the New York mayoral election? Well, I mean, let's just start with Adams as a figure, right? I mean, he's a charismatic guy. He also mm-hmm. gets to pull on um, certain kinds of, of identity traits or experiences that a lot of people think are valuable. Um, the fact that he has been victimized by police before, uh, he has been a police officer at the highest uh, rank, and um, and he's somebody who knows how to speak the language. There's a great quote from him, actually, from the midst of the George Floyd uh, protests, where he he begins to talk about why so many whites are out in the streets. And it's really poetic, right? This was on, I think this was on a, um, a television appearance or interview he gave to CBS. I can't remember if it was on 60 Minutes or CBS uh, Sunday Morning. Uh, one of their their uh, shows that some of the audience may not watch. Um, but the quote that he had was brilliant. It was like, you know, a lot of these people are out in the streets now because they're feeling black, right? They realize they don't have health insurance. They realize that they don't they don't have uh, they have they have advanced education, but they can't find a job. Um, they know that their future is uncertain, and so he keeps repeating that you know they're feeling black. So he was able to take what is our dominant way of thinking about inequality in the society since the 1950s at least, right? This idea that, that um, you know, class doesn't matter so much, but we know that race does, right? Which is kind of a Cold War, um, you know, creation, which we're still stuck with. And I think he has that, you know, sort of like Obama and, and other figures, he has that capacity to shuttle back and forth between an authentic presentation of an anti-racist politics and a familiarity that some people can appreciate. Clearly some of the black voters uh, in the boroughs um, and at the same time, you know, be completely committed to the society as it exists, um, the neoliberal urban growth regime that we have in most cities, as well as the, the role that police have played in shoring up the conditions for that pro-growth regime to, to work. And so I think, um, I think he's just, you know, he's a, he's a charismatic figure. It's not surprising that in this moment of the George Floyd protests or in the wake of it, We've seen, um, you know, the quick ascendancy of all these different political figures like Gary Chambers, um, you know, Adams and others. Right. And I'm not I'm not knocking them. I think actually some of these figures are better than than the alternative. Right. Um, And I think we have to take it on a case by case basis. But what it shows us is how the language of anti-racism which let's just be honest, I think it actually mischaracterizes, and I've said this many times before, it mischaracterizes the fundamental motives of our um, our carceral regime, right? It actually mischaracterizes origins. 
it mischaracterizes his motives, and it mischaracterizes his impact in the society overall. Um, but what it does, you know, in sort of making this assertive anti-racist uh, claim, it sets up the possibility for all sorts of ascendant politicians, as well as brokers who claim to speak on the behalf of uh, the broader aggrieved population. So, you know, there's been this steep rise in uh, violent crime, I mean, for, for a while now, but especially since COVID. So with this rise, uh, many progressives are pushing for policies of, quote, violence prevention. So this has taken many different forms. Some of this focused deterrence policing, public health intervention, or like funneling money to nonprofits and community groups that work on ending gun violence. So what do you think of some of these approaches? Do you think this gets at the root causes of gun violence or police violence? Yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't. I mean, it's been shown to to uh, to have some impact, right, in certain places. And I think this is this is where it's tough to be uh, to be socialist or to be on on the left, right, and and engage in these issues, right. On the one hand, we definitely need to acknowledge that for people who live in neighborhoods where there's high levels of violence, um, and not just homicides, but all sorts of other conflicts which leave people in the hospital or permanently maimed. Right or even dealing with all sorts of uh, you know psychological uh, trauma, that 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 sort of experience um, needs to be rectified. And if there's any sort of way that these strategies that people are talking about uh, lo- literally stop the bleeding, right, and and you know reduce the amount of misery that some people are living with, I think we should support it. Um, at the same time. And I, I think in this regard, I'm, I'm more in the mind of, of uh, Frederick Ingalls, right, in his, his book, The Housing Question. When we focus too intently on policing, right, we forget um, what is connected to it. This is a secondary evil, right, that the, the whole point of policing um, and the type that we have, which grew out of, again, out of the, the post-war urban transformation, which resegregated cities more strictly in racial and class lines than they had been before, um, the point of policing is then to manage uh, a large, um, unemployed, underemployed, uh, and alienated, mostly black, but also brown and sometimes white uh, working class population. That is the function of it. And it's necessary if all of the things that people like Eric Adams uh, want are going to happen within cities. And that's the return of investment, um, the renewal of, of middle class consumer spaces, the attraction of various uh, uh, middle-class and wealthy residents and tourists back to the city. If all of those things are going to happen in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Chicago, Philadelphia and elsewhere, police play an important role, right? So it's not just about um, the role of police in, in uh, interrogating and harassing Black people writ large. It is a targeted um, set of strategies which focus primarily on the most dispossessed and the most, um, you know, the most alienated segments of the black population, right? And so we have to be clear about that. Um, if the strategies you're talking about work, that's fine. But I think ultimately we need to be a different kind. Of, we need to be about a different kind of abolition, uh, which is the abolition of the conditions that police are there to to uh, to manage. So I, I want to uh, quickly rewind and take a look at an article you wrote last year about corporate blackwashing, because uh, I think, you know, uh, don't let blackwashing save the investor class. It's a great article in Jacobin. And I think, you know, 
again, a year and a half out from the initial protests, I think a lot of people on the left have been, like yourself, critical of kind of the corporate response uh, as they see it to Black Lives Matter and to the protests. Um, But I think a really interesting piece about your article is you don't see it as simply a matter of co-optation. And I think that that is something that we hear on the left a lot, right? That the, that corporations are simply co-opting an authentic grassroots anti-racist movement. Uh, And I think in your piece, you argue that the relationship or what's going on is a little bit more complex. So can you talk a little bit about why co-optation is not quite the right frame for what's happening between the corporate response to Black Lives Matter? Right. Um, So there's a book that might be relevant, um, you know, some people may want to return to it by uh, Thomas Frank um, called The Conquest of of Cool, which was, uh, I think, basically a um, the book that came out of his dissertation thesis. But it's really great for looking at how corporations responded to 60s counterculture and really embraced um, the style, the aesthetics, the messaging, uh, appropriated those for their own purposes of expanding their their market market share and and um, you know improving their profitability, right? Reaching different kinds of of uh, consumers, um, and so the strategy was no longer about um, talking about the the merits of their products, but more so about associating that product with rebelliousness, right? And with um, really a rejection of the status quo, rejection of um, hierarchy, even as it was contributing to um, you know, corporate profit making. And so that book is about the 1960s. The other people like Robert Allen, who was writing, you know, at the very uh, sort of tail end of Black Power, um, about the, the machinations of corporations at that particular time. And so this is not a new set of dynamics, right? What we're looking at right now is not co-optation in the sense of corporations need to step in and restore order. We're looking at corporations doing what they've been doing and really refining what they've done, um, at least, you know, in my entire lifetime. Right. So for the last 50 years, they've been doing the same thing. Right. Finding ways to support uh, a particular kind of anti-racism, demonstrating their commitments to diversity in terms of race, class, gender, sexuality and other categories. And so this is not a new thing, um, but it's an opportunity for these corporations. We could also say as well that. Even the protests we associate with Black Lives Matter um, have always had an interesting relationship with with corporations, right? And so let's take one of the most important, um, you know, an iconic protests, right? We look at Colin Kaepernick when he was quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers taking a knee in protest of, of police violence. So Kaepernick loses his job because these owners, you know, shy away from um, from from uh, hiring him, right? The fear is that they they would have this rebellion from their rabid racist fans, and then it would it would mean problems, you know, at the at the uh, at the box office, right? Um, so Kaepernick uh, basically parlays that into a pretty lucrative deal with Nike, right? And and all of a sudden you begin to see Kaepernick billboards uh, across different cities. Um, again, expressing this idea of the rebelliousness, right? The the you know the rejection of of um, a corrupt order, which is totally facile, right? The same thing was true with uh, Beyonce Knowles' performance at the Super Bowl around the same time, right? I mean, she uh, not only decides to uh, to work with an organization that had spurned 
Colin Kaepernick, but then she also, uh, you know, adorns herself in the symbolic reference of Black power, even as she's helping to advance this broader spectacle of the Super Bowl and help to restore the image of the of the NFL in the midst of various protests coming from um, from Black publics and, and broader publics. And so I think, I just think it's it's interesting that we we assume that these things are so separate and antagonistic, but in fact, they're not. And we can also say that some of the organizations that we associate with Black Lives Matter were born out of uh, nonprofit funding. Many of them have been have benefited from nonprofit and philanthropical support. And, and in saying that, I'm not arguing that that is completely uh, corrupt, right? I mean, I think there's moments when people have relationships with nonprofits that can be uh, somewhat productive, but we shouldn't uh, work from this illusion that there's authentic rebellion over here and then uh, a, a, a corrupt corporate world somewhere on the other side, right, that's waiting to, to prey on them. Um, the picture is much more complex and we should be aware of those mm-hmm. complexities. So following from that, um, you know, that I, I guess in, in some of your work, you have um, identified this concept which you call militant liberalism or militant racial liberalism. Um, and I think at first mm-hmm. militant liberalism kind of sounds like a contradiction, right? But I think it's related to the dynamic that you're just discussing. And so I was wondering, can you explain what that means and why uh, why this concept is important for thinking about kind of some of the um, contradictions of the current movements for racial justice? Or like, how does this concept help us think through our current political moment? Right. So one way to think about it. Right. So if we if we think about the the post-war civil rights movement and its successes as a second reconstruction, um, you know, the restoration of the black vote, um, black participation within civic affairs, um, as well as major investments by by um, the federal government, uh, as well as those corporations and, and foundations I mentioned before in uh, reducing Black poverty and trying to address various urban problems. If we think about the Second Reconstruction, I mean, it it achieved some important things. Um, You know, from 1954 Brown decision until the 1980s with the election of Ronald Reagan, we saw Black poverty uh, greatly reduced, right? You know, so at the time of the Brown decision, 60% of of African-Americans lived below the poverty line. Uh, that number will be greatly reduced by the time I graduated from high school uh, in 1989 and then went on to grad school in the, in the 90s, right? So I just think that that um, we have to be aware of the progress that was made, but at the same time, uh, be aware of the limitations, that it didn't completely elim- eliminate poverty. It didn't deal with the problems of structural unemployment. Um, it didn't deal with the hyper-segregation of, again, those most dispossessed segments of the Black working class in cities and small towns uh, across the country. And so the second reconstruction had limits uh, and people like King and others were talking about those limits in the 1960s, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like, a, I'm not saying anything that's new, right? People knew this as it was transpiring. Add to that the fact that all of the gains that were made were rolled back uh, as a way, by way of neoliberalization, right? And so we've seen many of the things that provided um, black people with some sort of advance and helped to expand the ranks of the black uh, middle class. It helped to, um, you know, provide people with more in the way of unionized jobs through uh, public sector employment. 
all of those different mechanisms, again, coming out of the second reconstruction, have been weakened as a result of neoliberalism, right? Some of the first institutions to be attacked by Republicans, but also by New Democrats, have been the very ones that have supported, um, you know, Black advancement. And so now we're in a moment, you know, by the time Barack Obama is elected, we're in a moment when um, middle, black middle class people are hurting. They're hurting as a result of the loss of public sector employment. They're hurting as a result of the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, working class and poor blacks are hurting because of the ways in which the old social safety net is now being eviscerated and ripped out from underneath them. And so Black Lives Matter as a notion um, arises at the precise moment that it captures these different, uh, you know, felt needs and different experiences, right, of, of, uh, of reversal, right, the loss of that second reconstruction. And so it's militant in tone when we listen to the things that people are saying, you know, you know various speakers uh, at these rallies. It's militant in terms of tone, but all people are calling for, essentially, is the restoration of those same things that were lost, right, making sure that Black people who qualify for a mortgage can actually purchase a home where they want without being discriminated against. Making sure that people who uh, attain a certain level of education can have approximate income and other benefits like their white peers. A lot of the things that we're hearing, not just from Black Lives Matter, but from cognate uh, social formations and, and campaigns like reparations or discussions about disparities, is really about you know restoring the second reconstruction, and now you hear some people talking about a third reconstruction, really just sort of restoring the idea of, of racial liberalism, right, and racial justice. So it's not really, it's not really radical. Um, it may be presented in strident tones, but it's really very similar to a lot of the arguments that we've heard in earlier uh, periods. So I usually don't like talking about culture, but I'm going to turn to a kind of a cultural question. So in 2016, you wrote a really great piece about the movie Free State of Jones, which is a movie about a uh, multiracial populist uprising in the South during the Civil War. It's a really great movie. I only just saw it a few months ago, but I recommend everyone see it. And it's a very historically grounded and nuanced movie. But this is not the norm in our popular culture, especially recently. And I think there's kind of a lot of this vague black power nostalgia that really permeates a lot of our popular culture today. So... I mean, first, why do you think this is the case and what effect is this having on how people interpret black history and contemporary black political life? Yeah, well, I mean, Toure Reed likes to say, um, you know, when he's evaluating these movies, you know, do they really make our work, our job as academics harder? Right. And some of them most certainly do. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, some of this has to do with the ways that, um you know, black filmmakers have carved out a, a niche for themselves. Um, you know, I think that in earlier periods, you know, when there's there's much more fluidity, you you may have seen a lot of different kinds of of offerings on the table, right? I mean, you know, so in the 1960s, black exploitation, 70s, black exploitation um, films, you know, they they sort of overshadowed some of the other decent things that came out of that that period, right? Um, I think the same thing, you know, late 80s and 90s is kind of a renewal of focus or opportunities for Black filmmakers. Um, in both of those instances, we don't really hear about filmmakers like uh, Charles Burnett, who's, uh, you know, a brilliant 
filmmaker and somebody whose work I've always admired from, um, you know, some of his earliest work with the L.A. Rebellion filmmakers uh, all the way up through uh, To Sleep With Anger. Um, I think there's still a lot of great black filmmaking that happens. It's just not it's not circulated uh, in the same ways. Right. I watched a film recently called Hunter Gatherer, which was about uh, a person who was being released from prison and trying to put his life back together. And it was great. Right. It's not going to it's not going to circulate in the same ways. Um, and, and it's not going to uh, take up as much space or steal as much oxygen as some of the other crap that's out there. But I think it does exist. Um, I think maybe the bigger issue for us is that, you know, we, we need to carve out spaces where we can have conversations about these things. So even if it's a film that's, that's useless or worthless, to have a place where we can make that known, right, and we can talk about it with each other and, and figure out what we want. Um, you know, and, and not just what we want in terms of movies, but what we want politically, right? I mean, I think that's why film takes up such a, a big place for us and it, and it gets to, to corrupt how we think about history because we don't have enough of those spaces that once existed in different communities for people to have uh, intellectual conversations and sustained conversations about um, Black history, about American history. Uh, so I just think that that's, that's, it sort of points to a bigger problem that we need to, to resolve. Right. So, um, you know, not just better black movies, but also, uh, other spaces where we can, we can have uh, serious and sustained intellectual conversation and growth. And kind of, or well, just as a follow-up, you know, I mean, how do you see this play out in terms of historical analogies? Like people on the left love to make these analogies, like to the Panthers or to this or that. And we're, what we're doing is just like that. Like, how do you think, that's been playing out, like the way people are using history to make these kind of analogies to our current moment. Well, I mean, let's look at the the Judas and the Black Messiah movie as an example, right? Um, I watched it. I usually don't watch these things when they come out because I don't want the the banter on social media and elsewhere to corrupt time on a view it. Uh, when I watched it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I also didn't understand um, why some people thought it was controversial that they spent time talking about William O'Neill. Right. Um, I've had a chance to meet with some of the, the Panthers here in, in Chicago and, and my students have talked to them. And that was one of the first questions I asked them was like, you know, how did, how did O'Neill infiltrate, right? Like, how was it possible for this guy to, to embed himself in the organization? And the answer was simple. And they actually touch on it briefly in the film um, that he had a car. And a lot mm-hmm. of these people were really young and didn't have cars, and uh, and he he provided them with something that they needed, um, and they were aware that he you know he was a sort of uh, a, a nefarious uh, creature, right? There was there were some people who really didn't like him. That's also reflected in in the film. I think you know I thought it did a good job as far as as presenting us with how complicated it is, right? Uh, you know, to to sort of act politically, to operate politically. Um, and how easy it is to become infiltrated in that in that context, where it begins to to drift in the direction of of comic book, is when um, we see the momentary treatment of the Rainbow Coalition, right? Which, for one, um, you know, the character of of Bob Lee is almost non-existent when he was really the main architect and liaison, as far as I know, uh, within the Illinois Panthers 
and those groups that formed the the Rainbow Coalition, right? People like the the uh, groups like the Young Patriots, um, the Young Lords, and uh, Rising Up Angry. We don't really get a sense of that. The only thing we get is sort of the the soundbite worthy moment where um, you know about the Confederate flag and you know the fact that these are some some uh, people who resemble the kind of Trump voters that we we probably dislike. Uh, what's sad about that is what's missing is why that coalition came together and why somebody like Bob Lee would throw himself so deeply into organizing it. And one of the things that comes out, if you read Bob Lee's own accounts, um, he had his own reservations about dealing with these, with these, uh, you know, migrants from Appalachia and other places. And what he found out at one point when he stepped out of a meeting, he got harassed by police. They slammed him on the car. And almost as soon as this transpired, all of these working class white people poured out into the streets and surrounded the police and demanded that Bobby let go. And he says that, you know, when he saw that, he realized that it didn't matter if they were on the north side of Chicago and uptown or if they were in Austin or, or Garfield Park, that these whites, as well as blacks and Puerto Ricans and other groups here in the city, faced some of the same problems under the daily regime. And he was willing to work to try to build this, this coalition. That kind of nuance is just lost in a in a ninety minute, you know, uh, picture which focuses on Hampton, which is important. He's a charismatic and important figure um, who's who's gone too soon. But we lose a sense of what politics is about, right? It's not just about charisma. It's about devotion. It's about commitment. It's about sustained work with other people to discover your common needs, common uh, interests, and to figure out ways to pursue those and realize those. That isn't always captured that well uh, in film. And, you know, we just have to push filmmakers, but also, you know, not expect Hollywood movies to to do the work that we should be doing. And something else that struck me about the film is you very rarely hear them really talk about what their political goals were. And really, Mm -hmm. the the thing you hear the most was he wants to feed kids in the city. And I think this kind of goes back to like militant liberalism, where it's like, well, what, what really is the radical message here of this movie when really what you hear mostly is he just wants to feed, you know, set up things to feed kids in right. the neighborhood. Right. And that and that in and of itself is a crime, right? That the way that the the survival programs have been interpreted. Right. Um and and I in part blame, you know, the black power mixtape and the way that the the one quote by Jacob Hoover is is uh is um truncated and t- taken out of context. Hoover didn't really care about black self-help. I mean, I don't think he really cared. And we got to keep in mind, during that same period, you had black churches who had diners, right? They had community mm-hmm. diners. The black church I grew up in in the 1970s and 80s, we had a community diner. Nobody cared about that, right? Nobody's trying to rush in to, to stop us from, from serving uh, day laborers and, and uh, out-of-work people, right? The issue with the Panthers, which should be the one that we should focus on, Hoover was concerned about the ideological impact, you know, that the Panthers could have by way of the breakfast program. The idea was that this was a means of propaganda in the eyes of of Hoover, right? That if they were doing this and establishing a working relationship in ghettos across the United States, it could alloy, you know, Black communities to the agenda of the Panthers. And so he's more concerned about neutralizing their political project, not just the simply the notion of self-help. So I just think that gets misconstrued. 
Um, there's also the misinterpretation I've heard recently where people will argue that um, the, the Panthers pioneered free breakfast and then the federal government appropriated that from them. That's a total myth, right? The, the federal government was already engaged uh, in a pilot program for free breakfast um, before the Panthers were even formed. And there were other states, of course, that were serving free lunch to students long before um, long before the, the late 1960s. So I just think we have to be more vigilant in terms of thinking about these things. I mean, clearly Hoover is a, is a terrible figure and we should, uh, we should hate him. Um, but we should hate him for the right reasons. He was trying to neutralize what he saw as a potential um, you know, socialist project expanding in popularity in the United States. It had nothing to do with, with grits and, and, uh, and sausage, right? Um, so I, I, I want to uh, kind of fast forward now, I guess. Uh, you had mm-hmm. mentioned reparations uh, a little while ago, and that's kind of become like a hot item again. Um, we've been hearing a lot of politicians uh, either saying they support reparations or at least they support forming a committee to look into the idea of reparations. Mm-hmm. But we've also heard we've also heard a lot of different politicians at kind of the state and federal level calling different things reparations, right? Um, and we've also seen a rise in, I guess you might say, sort of race-targeted programs. So the ones that are coming to my mind are... Um there's an ongoing controversy uh, because there's uh, in the you know federal coronavirus relief, there's a provision that uh, gives funding to uh, non-white farmers. So white farmers are excluded. Um, and unsurprisingly, at least not very surprisingly to me, uh, that uh, the government is being sued now by white farmers, you know, represented by a legal group. Um, and unfortunately, that means that the funding, which was earmarked for, you know, black and other uh, other farmers of color is now locked up. Um, a similar thing happened in Oregon, where there was a COVID relief fund that was uh, earmarked specifically for black business owners. Again, uh, Oregon was sued. And I think that money, you know, millions of dollars is still locked up. Um, And then, of course, we have things like um, Evanston, Illinois, recently uh, passed a measure that would give some money to black uh, homeowners who, you know, uh, bought a home. I I don't remember the exact dates. Um, You're in Illinois, so you you probably know about this one uh, better than I do. Um, And, and, you know, I think we've heard a lot of discussion. Well, is this reparations? Is this not reparations? Um, And I think that's an interesting question, uh, the question of what is reparations. But I think more generally, what do you make of the rise of these sort of uh, racially targeted programs? I mean, is this, I guess, well, let I'll hand it over to you and then I'll add some thoughts. Yeah, so my, my immediate um, response, right, is that, you know, I'm not against racial targeting, right? I've, I've been an academic for a full time for 20 years now. And, um, you know, just within that context, right, Black students are underrepresented. They're not recruited in the same ways. Um, there's disparities in terms of retention and graduation rates. Um, black faculty, you know, struggle in the same ways in terms of, of recruitment and, and um, progression to tenure. So across all institutions and workplaces and schools in the United States, there's disparities. And I'm not against um, us trying to figure out creative ways to address those. I've been a part of, of those kinds of, of projects on different campuses and in communities, right? So, mm-hmm. so I get it. Um, I think it comes from a, a good place, but ultimately um, it doesn't really get at the core, uh, core issue, right, in, in, in some moments. So the, the Evanston case is a good one, right? And let's just talk briefly about that. 
you know, in order to qualify for the sort of, of uh, reparations, if you will, in Evanston, you had to have been a resident in Evanston before 1969. And you had to have been a victim of discrimination, uh, either by private parties or by some policies and practices in the city of Evanston. And you have to be able to prove that, right? So think about how narrow the pool of potential, uh, you know, claimants are when it comes to the 10 million or so uh, money that they've pledged, which will go towards home improvement, right? So if I'm able to demonstrate that I was discriminated against before 1969, um, then I may receive, you know, some uh, recompense for what happened to me that could be used either towards payment of my um, standing mortgage or, you know, towards a new mortgage or maybe to just do some improvements on my home. That's not reparations in the ways that we've been hearing it um, over the last few years or even over the last 50 years if we go back to black power and people making that argument. You know, reparations, um, I think it, it persists because of the power of the historical argument, right? And it's one that you can't really deny, right? This country, um, you know, has, has engaged in, in slavery, you know, throughout the, the, uh, its, its formative beginnings all the way up through the 19th century. And, uh, and then another duration of Jim Crow segregation, which mattered, right? It mattered in terms of of, uh, you know, who got a chance to build wealth and who had a chance to, to do well in the society. Uh, and so we can, we could, you know, we could easily make the, the, the case for it, right, that it, it, it matters. Um, at the same time, uh, I just think it doesn't really, again, deal with the contemporary motors of inequality. A lot of the, the wealth that's been lost over the last few decades, just take the subprime mortgage, uh, you know, uh, debacle, for example, a place like Detroit before the subprime uh, mortgage crisis. If you looked at that city, over 70 percent of the mortgages held in that city were held by black people. Right. So the majority of, of mortgages in the city of Detroit were held by blacks. I think that's been cut, you know, not quite in half, but close to half. Right. So that wealth that was lost had nothing to do with slavery. It had nothing to do with Jim Crow segregation and everything to do with predatory lending and other uh, more recent issues that um, that we would need to to address. And I know people, I have people in my family who were affected by the subprime crisis in Detroit. So I just think we have to do better. I think that the problems that we're facing are more immediate. Um, it's valuable through reparations and some of these other arguments to draw on the history because we, it has a certain moral power, right? We can evoke this longer history of, of, uh, of slavery and Jim Crow and discrimination. And we know that it can, it can sway some people um, towards action. But ultimately, I think we have to get back to what is, what is really driving the contemporary inequalities. And as I said earlier, I think the predicament that many Blacks find themselves in right now and many people in the United States in general has more to do with things that are relatively new, Right. Uh, you know, deindustrialization, uh, capitalist globalization and the movement of firms and jobs to other parts of the world, um, the hollowing out of collective bargaining rights and, and the loss of union membership in the country, as well as for the third or fourth time in this, this talk, the decimation of public goods that once provided people with some supplement to whatever wages they had. So I just think we have to go, you know, again, think more 
in terms of contemporary conditions and contemporary uh, forces and not always leap towards slavery and and uh and Jim Crow because it doesn't really it doesn't really help us and it leaves us with these sort of piecemeal type programs that aren't necessarily going to help very many people. So just to jump up jump in with a quick follow up um I think, you know, Adolf Reed and others, sometimes when they're talking about reparations, the idea of reparations as like a bit of a political non-starter, sort of point out that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to craft or to to draw together a majoritarian multiracial coalition around this demand. Um, and, and that seems right to me. But also when I look at, you know, some of these measures that, again, as you say, are piecemeal, but are still kind of race targeted uh, uh, initiatives that state, local and the federal government are pushing forward. Um, it, you know, it kind of makes me wonder, well, like, could this be a top down initiative that doesn't need, uh, you know, majoritarian multiracial coalition. And maybe that's not the type of politics we want, but I'm just curious if you think there's an opening for some kind of substantive form of reparations to sort of come to fruition in the next, I don't know, however many years. I mean, I don't, I don't see it happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we will probably see something along the lines of uh, a renewed, um, maybe a national commission, you know, the kind of thing that they've been calling for with House Bill 40 um, for for decades now. Um, I think we may see something along those lines, something that approximates what happened in the 90s with Bill Clinton. Um, you know, so that's possible. But, you know, in terms of determining, you know, just like with the, the Evanston case, determining who gets uh, the benefits, I think that's when you'll see more in the way of opposition. Um, you know, I mean, one, because it's a difficult thing to determine, right? But I think even more importantly, it's even more egregious and more difficult to find a majority coalition for than the, even the the uh, the Black farmers payout and other things that are now being contested. So, you know, we, we have to, I think, the, you know, to agree with, with uh, Jen's point, I think we have to think in, in majoritarian terms, right? And I think that bothers people. I don't understand why because we live in a liberal democratic society and one that requires numbers in order to win, right? And, you know, if we didn't have a majority support for the Voting Rights Act, it wouldn't have happened. If we didn't have majority support for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you know, and, and super majorities for that matter, it wouldn't have happened. And so I think we have to, we have to go back to that, right? We have to think in those, in those terms. And it's possible. It takes a lot of work. Um, but if we want to create a different kind of, of society and one that is racially just and one that also deals with some of these deeper inequalities, there's no way around it, right? There's no uh, shortcut other than building support, you know, brick by brick, um, person by person, um, and, and developing majorities to get things passed. I mean, this is, again, what happened last year. It was, it was spectacular. It was exciting. It didn't mean much in certain cities. You know, the attempt to try to, to cut ties with police in the Chicago public school district, it ran into a brick wall, right? Some people weren't on board with that. There was some reduction in funds for um, the CPS, um, or, or the relationship between police and the CPS. But I just think that, um, you know, again, we have to think in those, those strategic terms. If we can't build a, a broad majority, 
then we're not thinking seriously, right? We're not willing to play the game. Now, I'll echo you echo you in that. I, I don't understand what is this aversion to uh, thinking in majoritarian terms. I, mm-hmm. I don't know when that happened. I can't, can't relate to it. Um, so I think, uh, unfortunately, this might be our last question, but you, mm-hmm. you often talk about the need for, you know, public works projects as a way to addressing some of these root causes of um, violent crime and police violence. Can you talk about like, what would a revived and expanded public sector mean for black workers, especially? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm of the mindset that, you know, again, if we look at the historical progress, where did it happen and how did it happen? And if it wasn't for um, public employment, you don't get, uh, Washington, D.C. as the chocolate city that everybody loved and I loved, you know, in the 1990s, where you've got, you know, an expanded black middle class. There's all sorts of social life that springs forth from that. That was made possible through public sector employment. Um, the same is true for other big cities. And we could go back not just to the, the post Jim Crow period, but even during Jim Crow, um, the segment of, of black uh Working class folks, but also um, black professional managerial uh, stratum, a lot of that was dependent upon um, some public employment, whether it was postal workers or other uh, police officers and other other jobs. So I just think that, um, you know, a revitalized public works, one that's geared towards addressing the unique kinds of needs we have within cities um, and, and creating more, it could be attached to creating more in the way of public goods, uh, free public transportation, um, higher quality care, both for, uh, you know, preschool age kids, but also uh, for um, seniors. Um, those kinds of things are needed in cities, right? Improved infrastructure. All of those things could be done through something that, um, that builds on, the example of the Works Progress Administration or the Civilian Conservation Corps. But we have to be creative about it. We have to be courageous as well um, to try to push for those things and see them as a, as a possibility. But again, the, the public sector has shown, you know, in earlier periods uh, as a way of, of, you know, addressing, you know, employment needs and mitigating some of the discrimination that happens within private sector uh, employment. So I just think we have examples and I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't want people to think I'm just saying, let's just go back to the new deal. That's, that's not going to happen. Um, but, but there are examples that we can build on, right? We're not, we don't have to sort of cut, you know, come up with something from a, a whole cloth. So um, that's just my sense of it. I mean, I think public goods would go a long way um, towards improving life within American uh, cities, but also rural areas and, and small towns. Um, but again, we have to have the courage for, to push for those things. Right. Very well said. Um, since it took so long for you to come on, you're going to have to come on weekly now. That's the new rule. But <laughs> Yeah, so we'll see you next week. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Cedric. Good. Thanks it was so much great for having, having you me. on. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, you know what time it is. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Labor Paul. Um, for all of you who are just tuning in, uh, we that was just Cedric Johnson. Uh, again, uh, please check out his books, his articles in Jacobin, Nonsite, and Catalyst. 
Um, and Labor Paul, which we are now about to dive into, is our segment where Paul takes uh, questions related to labor from the audience. I think we had a few last time. Uh, so, Paul, you're going to answer one that has to do with the SEIU today, right? That's right. So definitely, if you have a question, could be about labor history, labor organizing, anything union, anything labor, you can put that in the chat now or as a comment, and we'll get to it hopefully next week. Um, so with this question, do you want to read it or should I read it? Let's, um, let me, let me read it. <laughs> okay. All right. Where is it? All right. Labor Paul, have you heard about the eccentric new president of the large SEIU local 1000 who wants the union to stop supporting the Democrats divisive racialism and no strike clauses? What do you make of this? So this is a very interesting and very complicated story. So recently there was an election for leadership of SEIU Local 1000. So SEIU stands for Service Employees International Union. And Local 1000 represents around 100,000 state workers in California, ranging from office assistants, custodians, prison nurses, and more. So the incumbent leader of the union, Yvonne Walker, was defeated by this surprise outsider candidate named Richard Brown who had an unusual platform. So he wants to end all spending on electoral politics to the Democratic Party. He wants to cut member dues in half. And he wants to allow members who don't pay dues to vote in union elections. There's other parts of the platform, but that was kind of the more controversial parts. So he claims that, you know, his stance is that money would be better spent in a strike fund than on electoral politics. And his goal, which is extremely ambitious, is a 21% wage increase in the next contract, which is kind of unheard of these days. So it's interesting because right-wing outlets like, you know, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, Freedom Foundation have commented on this election and they're kind of looking at this curiously because in some ways he's advocating for a more militant and confrontational approach towards the employer. But on the other hand, he's kind of echoing right-wing talking points about unions. So, you know, the right-wing frames, especially public sector unions, as these organizations that are only inter- interested in member dues that can be funneled into the Democratic Party. So these right-to-work bills that have been introduced in many states um, make it so members do not have to pay dues to the union. But what this does is it drains unions of their financial and political resources, and they still have to represent those members that don't pay in dues. And in 2018, the Supreme Court implemented right-to-work for all public sector unions. And so since then, this SCI local has seen many members opt out of the union. And part of why, you know, this guy was elected was him saying he's going to reverse that trend. So, you know, some on the left might look at this new president as a good development because, you know, here's a leader that's sticking it to the Democratic Party in a way. And it's certainly true that unions often uncritically give too much money to anti-labor Democrats but still, you know, public sector unions have to engage in electoral politics, uh, even more so than private sector ones, because, you know, if you work for the state, your employer, I mean, is the state, um, is politicians. So, you know, and it certainly makes a difference if they're bargaining with a Democrat versus a Republican, even if we can all agree that, you know, there's much to be desired about Democrats. So, you know, if this new president cuts dues in half, he's going down a dangerous road, I think, because... Dues are the lifeblood of unions. You know, it's what makes unions different than NGOs or nonprofits. Unions are funded by its members. And I think it's totally good and healthy to talk about, you know, spending member dues in a different and better way. But I think it's dangerous for a union president to maybe echo the right-wing talking points that dues are bad. Um, and dues fund the initiatives the union takes. So including, you know, if this new president wants to set up 
a strike fund. I mean, that's going to be coming out of uh, member dues. So, you know, this election had a very low turnout. Um, less than 8,000 of the locals, 100,000 members voted. Um, but it's still, it's interesting that people like Richard Brown won and to think about what that means. And, I mean, it could indicate a few things. I mean, it could indicate that um, less members automatically see the Democratic Party as their natural allies and that more members are open to a kind of a more militant, even though if it's an incoherent posture. Um, a lot of criticisms were made of the former union leadership for not being open and democratic enough. And some have kind of described this guy, Brown, as a Trumpian figure because of the way he's kind of shaking things up. So I think we'll have to see what happens. But, you know, it's kind of interesting because just like in electoral politics, we see voters kind of grasping for alternatives as we face a crisis. You might see that same thing happening in union elections. I mean, if these members feel we're not getting thing, anything out of the Democrats, um, we want to take go down this radical new path. But I do think there are some dangers in the path that this new leadership might go down. But, um, you know, Jen, I'm a little divided on this because in, in some ways, you know, often I'm like, yeah, like unions, a lot of times are just uncritically giving money to the Democrats. You know, mm-hmm. they should focus on organizing more. But again, I think how this is kind of echoing the right is a little dangerous. But it, it's a very fascinating, weird story. Um, they're actually... Some people challenge the election. They're looking at Mm -hmm. that. It's kind of a weird situation. First of all, Paul, I just want to say you completely skipped over the spicy bits about the divisive racialism and the no strike clauses. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't find as much about that. So I honestly, I didn't know exactly what they were referring to in the question. Uh And I also should add the caveat, you know, like I'm not in California. I'm not in this union. Like someone who's in that union would probably have a much more, you know, uh, more rich take than, than what I could gather kind of from the sources I was looking at. Well, if you left the question and you know more about the divisive racialism, please let Paul know so he can get <laughs> on I, that topic next time. What I think might be going on there is that, you know, the former president, part of what some people criticize is like she was she was kind of very like in an NGO mode mm-hmm. and maybe like maybe echoing some Black Lives Matter talking point. And by the way, the new president is also African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it was something around support for Black Lives Matter or like echoing woke NGO talking points. I'm not I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would like to know. That's spicy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So again, if you know, please, please let us know. We're curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I guess the only thing I have to say is to echo what you said, just that uh, dues, of course, are, you know, a union's lifeblood and also kind of the big hurdle or like the big stepping stone that I think a lot of union busters sort of like put forward to try to scare people away from uh, joining unions or, you know, to try to push, as you were saying, right to work laws. Um, and, you know, I... Like, I get it. Like, I mean, Paul, you're in a union. Um, I've been in a union. Um, it's not, you know, it, dues aren't huge, you know, right. but if especially, I mean, we, you know, we are both in sort of like professional level jobs. Um, but if your paycheck is already small, you know, um, and like, let's say you work at like an Amazon warehouse um, and you uh, are being told that you'll have to give what little you have, uh, you'll have to, you know, give some percentage of that to a union, which, you know, you might you might see as, I don't know, like a, a bureaucratic sort of like democratic party operative, um, or, or, you know, just, just as like a wing of HR that doesn't really fight for you. Um, I can see why that's not appealing. So dues is always going to be like a a hurdle, I think. Yeah. And I think, I mean, 
And, then, you know, unions always have to deal with the dues issues. I mean, whenever an employer mm-hmm. is resisting a union, that's the first talking point. But, yep. you know, for unions, like, this is a wake-up call. Like, I think unions really have to send a clear message. It's not that unions should not engage in electoral politics or give to the Democrats. Again, it often, it really makes a huge difference. But it should be clear to the members that the first primary concern is the workplace and your benefits, not telling the Democrats, you know, on every mm-hmm. issue so that, and I think, you know, in, in that local in SIU, that wasn't made very clear. And it was, right. there was a very, very close relationship between the Democrats and the union that clearly some, some members have reacted against. Just off the top of your head, um, do you, can you think of a union that does a good job of kind of foregrounding that it's like there for the, the rank and file first and does it, it, you know, is not really getting wrapped up in Democratic Party politics? I mean, I know that there are obviously a ton of them out there but i'm just wondering if there are any like superstars that come to mind (laughs) Um, in that regard (laughs) right you know i mean it's hard because like each union the locals can vary so much yeah so you know like for example my union the national union is aft but chicago teachers union is an exemplary one the los Mm -hmm. angeles teachers union you know um has been doing a lot of great work um you know if anything some unions may be are too far the other way, like in mm-hmm. some building trades locals, like it used to be at the national level, not so much anymore. Like there were a lot of building trades that supported Nixon, but increasingly locally, you know, some of these unions are more likely to maybe support a Republican on, on certain things. So that might be too far the other way. Um, I guess I'm not really answering your question well, but <laughs> it, it varies so much according to local. Um, yeah, I think you know, that's a good point. But yeah, I yeah. think the general point is that like the, you know, the union, it really should not be seen or they shouldn't act as this outside entity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and often even pro-union workers will talk about the union as if it's something external. Right. Um, and I think, you know, they got to work to have make sure workers actually have ownership because it really is their organization that they can control. Um, mm-hmm. Um, I, I just want to quickly bring up a quote that I found. Um, so apparently the staff of MSNBC is unionizing or they just went public with their union right. drive. Um, and I read this really amazing quote in the Daily Beast that I want to pull up. So uh, one of, you know, MSNBC, um, at, as expected, is trying to uh, bust the union. I mean, what else is new, right? Uh, so one of the executives in like a union busting meeting, like sat down with the workers and had this amazing quote. Uh, let me pull it up. Um, So the executive argued that union dues and fees could discourage low-salaried entry-level employees from joining MSNBC and also suggested that the fees could discourage (sighs) non-white candidates from taking jobs at MSNBC. Uh, He then goes on to say, if our entry-level jobs come with a requirement to write a check, pay a percentage of your salary, I'm desperately concerned that we might be turning away people who might be exactly the people that we want to be the next generation of MSNBC, NBC News employees, he said, noting the network's push to diversify staff. Um, So I actually hadn't seen that quote yet, so that's why I'm reacting in real time. Yeah, you're you're getting the, like, immediate, like... (laughs) Right. <laughs> blow of the quote. Um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously incredible. I don't know how far, you know, propaganda like this goes. I mean, maybe it's not very convincing, but I think that, you know, going back to um, going back to your segment from from like way earlier about unions uh, and the role that they play in reducing prejudice and racism. I think what's interesting about, you know, our moment right now is you can also see 
uh, executives and bosses using the language of anti-racism or like this woke language of diversity to do the opposite, which is to try to divide workers. I mean, I think that, you know, Walter Ben Michaels has in fact made this point on the show before that like sometimes it seems like anti-racism, especially like at this kind of like diversity workplace level, uh, almost performs the same function that racism used to, right? In terms of dividing workers. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, two things I want to point out just for listeners again, like, and I mean, 99.9% of cases like your dues, it is calculated that basically the benefits that you'll get from the union in terms of like your salary increases and your wage will far outstrip what you're paying in dues. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, the dues is literally what pays for not just your your bargaining, but like protection at work and all, all that sort of thing. And the other thing is, you know, something else from that Princeton study they pointed out was that actually the highest uh, union density is among black workers. So literally, mm-hmm. black people are the most likely to be in a union in the United States at this moment. Sorry, there's an ice cream truck outside uh, my, my <laughs> I house. Can hear, yeah. Right. Um, also, you know, the gro- most the fastest growing sector of unionized workers are Latino workers. Um, mm-hmm. So again, this whole thing about this is going to discourage non-white employees um, is really it's just it's just false. Um, yeah. So. All right. Well, on that cheery note, um, it was great having Cedric on, yeah. of course. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we're going to call it a night. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching and we'll see you next week. All right.